How was it? A few years ago. It was incredible. Yeah. I was like the only, I just came alone and it was just a bar full of like gay men that were like a decade older than me. And they were like, what does this young woman know about oh my god barbara streisand and i was like everything <laughs> every single everything there is mother everything there is to know thing. yeah <laughs> we're gonna have to i don't know this is probably podcast related but at some point we're gonna have to engage with the entire barbara catalog from start to finish like i really need to engage with everything she's ever done yeah with you specifically and oh how we can cry oh how we'll laugh there are so many different episodes we could do on Barbara. I, I mean, like, Yentl is its whole thing. I, I could do a whole podcast on the duets albums, Barbara Sings with Barbara. Like, just... Yes. The fact that... Barbara Sings with Barbara. <laughs> you know, um, for uh, A Star is Born, those are all her clothes. Because she just didn't think they had good clothes for a pop star. And she was like, I'm, a Barbara, I'm Barbara Streisand, so we'll just be using my closet now. <laughs> I tend to agree with her. I've actually never seen A Star is Born. I know. Can you forgive me? No. None of them. You have to. You have to. You have to and I you don't have know. to. It sounds so girly. I'm just no. too straight for something like that. It's so good. I just good. don't think I would get anything out of it. It's so good. You have to watch the one from the 30s and then the one from the 50s and then the one from the 70s, which sucks. And then the new one, which is better. Barbara Streisand's one's the worst one. It's not close. Yeah, they, like, ruined the plot because they were, like, this tried-and-true film that has already been wildly successful three times, like, the issue is the ending that everyone likes. And so they just, like, made it slightly ambiguous, like, maybe happier, but it's just worse. It was, I love that. It was good. It's one of the movies uh, that was produced. Do you know that Barbara Streisand uh, dated her hairstylist? for a couple years but like she didn't want him to be a hairstylist anymore so she just made him a producer and then he became like a successful producer in Hollywood I just want Barbara Streisand to tell me what to do I know do you think Barbara Streisand would tell us to start recording this podcast <laughs> yes well, that seems like as good as time as I need to jump right in. This is We Did the Reading, a homo pomo podcast where we're smart about dumb and dumb about... Sp- and I'm Pia. My nonverbal partner here is Clementine. Hi. And we are the gay live and cook in the pilot episode that's absent for the remainder of the series discussing the queer media that made us like this. Um, today, we are talking about two episodes of The Golden Girls. Mm-hmm. This was obviously chosen by me because it, I didn't have to read to do it. Um, the two episodes that we're talking about are Scared Straight, which is season four, episode 10, which came out in 1988, and Sisters of the Bride, which is season six, episode 14, came out in 1991. And once again, shockingly timely. I mean, the first episode, Crush, fires. Yeah. And then... Are You My Mother? Are You My Mother? Your family drama. Yeah. I had a mental breakdown. Yeah. And now it's a... National Coming Out Day, and we're talking about coming out. Yay. I never know what to do for National Coming Out Day on social media, because, like, I never really came out. <laughs> kind of always, everyone sort of knew. <laughs> everyone had an inkling, they were like, something's not right with her. You never had to tell people. Um, <laughs> something's very wrong. They told you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Just so you know. Uh, uh... I know. I it feels really performative and I also I don't know. I'm, it feels really performative and on the one hand I like want to be like uh, you know owning it for for the young gays, but on the other hand like I don't know. Everyone I know is like not only gay but like much gayer than me. Like I live in such a <laughs> gay world. So rarely is like who I fuck or my gender like particularly relevant to my life like everyone's kind of just already down you know i disagree it's all i really want to talk to you about i'm just like is my sexuality and gender who are you fucking (laughs) two what's your gender girl let's get into it yeah but we're doing it in a fun way we're doing it yeah but on because we're in a post a pomo way we're We're doing it in a pomo pomo about homo we are actually this (laughs) first episode scared straight uh, came out a few weeks after the first National Coming Out Day. Aww. Isn't that crazy? That's sweet. I love so that. So it's like very much a time capsule of like a 
late 80s, early 90s uh, American view on gay, the gays. Yeah. As we know them. Yeah. Capital T, capital G, the gays. We don't really have time to go into um, the rest of the alphabet soup. We're really just dealing with the gays here, which, as we all know, are... Of course, only homosexual men. That's all we really need to worry about. Well, and only white, middle-class homosexual men from, like, good families. Yes. I actually am, like... Let me let me collect myself. I'm so I'm just so excited to talk to you about the Golden Girls because truly, like my obsessions that I'm trying that this podcast really boils down to is trying to get you to watch episodes of Buffy and Golden Girls, and I, I will know. find a way to get you to watch the entire canon just in the course of this podcast. I'll be like, today we're <clears> watching <throat> the pilot of Buffy, and you're like, nothing gay happened here. I'm like, girl, she carried a steak. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> anyway. I think that it's really easy in the year of our Lord 2020, etc., to look back at something and find everything that's wrong about it. Because obviously this is about like a white, like middle class or like upper middle class gay guy and the reactions are not perfect. But I think my view is always to appreciate the forward thinking nature of the media at the time. And the Golden Girls has so many very special episodes of which these are two and i think overwhelmingly the message is positive it's like really teaching the children something positive the children being heterosexual america i completely agree i was floored by how um progressive this episode was actually like for a sitcom in reagan's america this episode came out in 1988 the AIDS crisis had been going on for s- almost a decade. That's like the world that that this uh, episode comes out into. And so for a character on national television to say like, you're gay and I love you and I accept you, even though it's like hard, I'm going to like try. That's incredibly radical to have aired on primetime television in like. It's radical and it's a significant, <clears throat> in my opinion, and Oh, God, I fear the left, even as I say this. Uh, But in my opinion, it's a significantly more useful lesson for a character like Blanche. Yeah. And the audience at home that is in the same place that Blanche is in. Uh, If you're in, like, gay panic phase or heterosexual panic, rather. Yeah. Like, you kind of need to, like, stop panicking before you can move past that. And so I think this is a really great introduction to what that looks like for someone to have a family member come out to them and maybe not be like 100% okay with it, but not be hateful is actually like a really important step, especially at this time. And for someone like Blanche, who is not a great person, although she is like a big favorite of the show because let's not not to get too spooky about it but she's like very much from the south very like romantic about the old south right and she has to learn a lot of lessons in very special episodes there's another episode where she learns about racism in a very like teaching moment way where (laughs) she's not really not getting it so for someone like her to have this kind of teaching moment and this kind of positive reaction is like, I don't know. I think it's important. I think it's a very cool artifact. I do too. It. My motto, politically and socially, is that nothing will change through one source of effort. It will take all of us pushing at this thing from all sides in order to create change. And I think there's a tendency to kind of, yeah, dismiss like the most mainstream um, signs of progress which is fair because it, it does get disheartening if you are like, if those signs of progress remind you of your own further marginalization, you know? Like if you are, like in our era, for example, a lot of the discussions in queer spaces are like, why did- The discourse. A lot of the discourse is like, <laughs> the fight for gay marriage became a fight for heteronormative, cis, gay and lesbian couples to be like everybody else and the fact that that became our core like social movement as queers 
for well over a decade uh, fails some of us. And I think it's a thing where both of those things are true, you know? I think it's true that, like, an episode like this helps some people more than others. I also think that, like, episodes like this are, like, the gentle push for the Blanches of the world who have the potential to be allied or more understanding um, if we can greet them with something that has this level of gentle patience. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. I mean, I I agree. I, I also, my personal views are also like pretty radical, but I also am a big proponent in personally recognizing the reality that I'm currently living in. And so when I am presented with an opportunity to gently push someone towards a more progressive view, I try to take it. And I think that this is what that episode is doing. Both these episodes, rather. Yes. I see your next talking point, which is pop culture and the gays. Before you get into that, or like as an intro, have I talked to you about my RuPaul theory of fame? It could also be called the Ellen DeGeneres theory of fame. Oh, God. I'm scared. Are you ready? I'm bracing. So my RuPaul theory of fame, like RuPaul, kind of a polarizing figure in the gay community at this point because uh, he is so ingrained in straight culture. He's fracking. He's like really out here um, being. Yes, we love our fracking queen. We love RuPaul, I heart fracking Andre Charles. But my theory is, (laughs) my theory is that if you are someone like RuPaul or Ellen, uh, if you are so completely marginalized by mainstream society and then you manage to get that successful, you manage to open that many doors, even just for yourself, you have to become a cartoon of yourself. You have to become um, basically on the inside a straight white man who can relate to all the straight white men in power. And then whatever makes you different has to become so non-threatening that you basically like remove all of that power from yourself. It's kind of like Hannah Gadsby says in Nanette where she's like, when a marginalized person makes fun of themselves, it's not humor, it's humiliation. You're humiliating yourself yeah. to make other people comfortable, to make yourself I've for sure done that just in my, like personally as a survival tactic I, and it always feels really bad. It's bad, but I think that that's... <sighs> the theory is basically that like, when you look at someone like RuPaul and you see how far RuPaul goes from their original ethics in order to achieve their level of success, that says less about RuPaul as an individual and more about what any individual needs to do to achieve success in our culture. That, I think, is kind of um, a way that you can also mark time or social progress. <laughs> are like, who are the uh, marginalized people that succeeded and what did they have to do to um, make themselves not threatening? Little Richard, also an incredible example, invented rock and roll, but had to do so in like a bunch of makeup and a wig so that no one was stressed out thinking he was going to fuck white women. Also because he was never going to fuck women. But like... You, the, you know the main thing <laughs> like he did yeah i bet he i bet he fucked some women he, just for the love of the game he did he also apparently was like really into like being cucked like he couldn't admit that he wanted to fuck men so he would get his girlfriends to like fuck men like he'd like drive his girlfriend somewhere like this is he would like they'd like meet a, a guy at a bar and then like he'd be driving and they'd like fuck in the back seat and that was like little richard's like thing that's great. I know a lot about Little Richard's sex life. Too much, probably. I think not enough. He he was really... During the eras where he was not into God, he was really forthcoming with all of the, like, horny stories. And they're, they're, they're crazy. He, he be fucking. <laughs> Little Richard do, in fact, be fucking. Little Richard I've is heard up that. in heaven, and he's fucking. I think I read that. <laughs> Yeah. I think I read that somewhere. Okay, I want... I love that theory, first of all. I would put... Um, not the Little Richard be fucking. The, uh, that's not a theory, that's a theory fact. Yeah. yeah, that's just the truth. That's pr- known fact. I would put Lizzo in that category. But I think yeah. she's playing it real smart. Lizzo's really having to, like, really uh, acknowledge that she knows that she is fat and black 
in a way that makes thin white people comfortable, but I think it's for it's for good. It is. It's all like Lizzo is also like another component of that, which is like how fucking talented do you have to be to get taken seriously? Like she is a great songwriter. She can sing. She plays the flute and she fucking dance. I've seen her live. That bitch just dances for two hours straight with no breaks. It's insane. Like the the level of talented she had to be to succeed as a fat black woman also is like incredibly talented. It's like you have to be so much better than everyone and you have to have no emotions about your mistreatment. And that kills something profound in you it seems and you end up becoming um a person who's uh so ambivalent they're almost moralist you know i hope that lizzo i see what you're saying but i believe that lizzo is like smart enough and strong enough that she will like survive this paradox i hope so i think this is, I would just like to say, this is a Lizzo, a pro-Lizzo podcast. It's very much a pro-Lizzo podcast. I would only say, in interviews I've read with her, it seems like people are at least acknowledging it more and in a more responsible way than they would have, you know, should she have come out 30 years ago. And that gives me hope that, like, she can kind of keep herself um, and keep herself whole. She seems... Um, same with Megan the Stallion. I think there seems to be certainly much more than like when we were growing up. Like in the 90s, I think the 90s and the 2000s were like a strangely apolitical time in America. Like we all just collectively kind of decided that like history was over <laughs> and racism was over for like 20 years. Not like all of us, oh, but yeah. like hegemonically. Well, no. Obama ended racism. No, didn't it, you know? it was like not even. You, it was like. Didn't you get the bulletin? It was like, I mean. But even for the, like, 20 years before that, like, I don't see color was, like, the progressive thing to think, you know? Yeah. And pop stars were encouraged to be, you know, our pop stars were Britney. Like, imagine Britney um, making a political statement on SNL, you know, like, in the era of, like, the Dixie Chicks getting their entire careers ruined because they said one thing critical of the president. Megan the Stallion went on SNL, made this, like, radically explicit statement about needing to protect Black men and women from police violence. And that is not something that would have ever happened two decades ago. You know, Chanel Connor went on uh, SNL in the 90s. Bring, yeah, bring that up. Like, that's, like, you want to talk about social progress? So yeah, like, she went on the 90s, tore a picture of the Pope because they were raping children. They were like, you're the issue here. <laughs> How dare you protest the rape of children? Whoa, 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 whoa. Wait, Back it up. That's way too spicy, <laughs> Ms. O'Connor. <laughs> God. Okay, now that we've gotten thoroughly sidetracked, I want to ask what it's like for you as someone, because I grew up watching the Golden Girls because I watched a lot of, like, rerun TV growing up. So, like, the Golden Girls and the Nanny were always on. So I've seen all of the episodes over and over and over again. And then when I was moving a while ago, I think I sat down and watched, like, virtually all of it in order. So I'm like very familiar with the with the text, mm -hmm. if you will. But I want to know what it's like for you who's like familiar with the show, but didn't like grow up with it, doesn't have that like intimate level of understanding to jump into these two episodes and like this dynamic. I loved it. I literally laughed out loud like multiple times and was just like reacting quietly to myself. Like I was delighted by the show. I yeah. always say that it's a masterclass in comedy. It's just like, do you want to know how comedy works? Yeah. Here's four women that are going to break it down for you. Be like, yeah, no. Beat by beat. It's a perfectly structured sitcom. I was watching a YouTube video, which <clears throat> I'll reference later, but... Matt Baum is the creator. He mentioned that in one of the scenes, Rose puts on like a full face of makeup and jewelry to read a cat magazine at home alone. Yeah. They also are always going to to sleep with like a full beat. Just like beat the house. Full beat. Going to bed in a nightgown. Yeah. I love it. Full beat. And like, and like th these women with their like arthritic old hands with like perfectly quaffed bubbles of hair again as they go to sleep beautiful yeah. 
the larger conversation of the Golden Girls is how it, this is just like such a cornerstone of gay culture, honestly, mm-hmm. which subscribes to my theory of the like media that's relevant to gays. And one of those factors being fierce women, which this just has in abundance. Sure. It's just like th- four fierce women just learning, growing, expressing, living, laughing, loving together. Mm-hmm. And it's so compelling. And it's really like, I was realizing when I'm watching this, it's like the proto Sex in the City, but like better. <laughs> yeah. I know that's spicy, but you can really play the same games that you play with Sex in the City with this. Cause there's an episode in the Golden Girls about everything. There's four women and you can be like, I'm the Dorothy. I'm a Dorothy, by the way, obviously. Obviously. In case you couldn't guess. This show is um, way more progressive than Sex in the City. Sex in the oh, city. my other choice was so for this homophobic. Was a Sex in the City g- gay episode, but we're going to oh get into God. that later. Oh my God, which one? Because there's like there's a lot that I want to get into, but we'll have to. <sighs> That's just we'll have to make a whole curriculum. hard to revisit at this point. You know this. I don't have a lot of TV shows that I watch, but that's one I've seen like every episode several times, and I like can't really watch it anymore because it just bums me out. Like the memory of the show is nice, and then I revisit it, and I'm like, you guys are a awful people, and b like pretty racist and homophobic, and like also get jobs, literally get jobs. Yeah, get a job. Like, how do you have so much money and so much time in Manhattan? I'm sorry. <laughs> I only I only recently started watching Sex in the City. I think at your request, yeah, I, I was like, I, wow, I need to dive into this. I forced you at gunpoint. It's so good, but it's also like it's great, but the politics are it's interesting that the politics are so much worse, especially considering it's so much later and it's like less of a sitcom. This like Golden Girls is very structured. Like there's an A plot, there's a B plot. And, like, everything's going to be wrapped up. Sex and the City is a little bit still along those lines, but a little bit looser. There's sort of, like, overarching boyfriends and things that are happening in everyone's lives that doesn't really happen in the Golden Girls as much. And it's also aired on HBO. So you'd think that it would be better, but it's not. It's worse. I want to talk about the bisexual episode of Sex and the City, where known slut... I fucking... That episode makes me want to... She's like, what do you mean you're bisexual? I could never fuck a man who has had sex with a man. I, oh my God. Because like, what, like, because why? Like, ah, uh, it makes me so it mad. It seems like a crazy Try place it. to draw the line. Try it, Carrie. I recommend it. Fuck. It bothers me so much. She also got to kiss Alanis Morissette. She in that does, episode. and she's not even into it. She's just like smoking. She's not Alanis Morissette crawls towards her, and she's like, "This might as well happen." But I don't care yeah. who. You, I, if Alanis Morissette crawls towards you and wants to kiss you, like act into it, you stupid Sorry, bitch. Sorry, Maggie. Sorry. Yeah. Alanis Morissette is crawling towards me in a game of spin the bottle with a room full of bisexuals. I'm sorry. I didn't have a choice. If Alanis it's not Morissette cheating. kissed me, my partner would congratulate me. Like, yeah, that's the correct response. Yeah. Uh, okay, so, sorry. No. We got off top. I got a little, I'm just heated about sex in the city, but let's be soothed by the Golden Girls. So I think that one of the reasons that the Golden Girls work so well for these very special episodes is because the characters are such archetypes that it really can work as a Socratic circle where they can present varying viewpoints on an issue. So like, obviously Dorothy is like the smart one and she is super sarcastic. And then her mother is like wise, but like fiery and kind of like the wild card. Mm-hmm. Blanche is like slutty. That's like her main personality trait, but she's also very like self-centered and dramatic mm-hmm. um, in a way that makes all of her stories, because this show is also about storytelling, but that makes all of them very like grandiose in a way that's very, she's very, she's slutty, she's self-centered, but she's very charming. Mm-hmm. And then Rose is like dumb and wholesome. And like with these various, with these four characters, like you said, we can put them in any situation. So if a situation like this arises and Blanche needs to get learned, right. she can get learned by someone. It's absolutely a Socratic circle. And the thing I'm going to say, I don't have a technical term for it, so I'm going to sound dumb. It's funny that you <clears throat> think that's why you're going to sound dumb. <laughs> um, I also think of them as almost these like four different stages of like life. Rose is very childlike, 
Blanche is very like adolescent. Mm-hmm. Dorothy is very much wow. like an adult, and then Sophia is obviously like a person and like the end of their life. Whoa, dude! Yeah, like they're very much Bruh. like a, a person throughout the course of life, despite all being kind of contemporaries. Bro. Yeah, bro. <laughs> I hate, I hate when you're smarter than me. It makes me so mad. I know. <laughs> it sucks because it happens basically every day. That's really, that's like fantastic. <laughs> I think you could also plot them along the elements, but I might have to think about it. I think you could also take these characters and Sex in the City and like pair them up. And I think you could take also even like It's Always Sunny, even though like, Frank is like a fifth wild card (laughs) character. Like I think all of those like really successful ensemble shows, these are kind of the four personalities that need you need to lean back on to give yourself these like four angles to a and then you can just mix, shake them up in any combination and something will interesting will toss out. Yeah, it it creates like I almost want to say it's such an easy tension. I've never tried to write a sitcom before, so I don't know. But, like, yeah, when the characters are that dynamic, you kind of just need, like, a premise. And then it's almost like a paint-by-numbers to do an episode like that. Or to just do any episode of the show, which I think is kind of the goal if you're trying to knock out 20 of these a year, right? Like, I don't know. (laughs) Wow. I honestly, I love the Golden Girls. I'm sorry. Hmm. Hmm. No, I agree. I, I. Hmm. I'm sorry. I'm just making fun of you. <laughs> you hate when I make that noise. It's just my like. I just, just, I just want to get to the bottom of it. You just get so insecure. It's just my thinking noise. I wish we could make one other friend. <laughs> I know. We need to learn. <laughs> we need to meet another person. But I don't think we will. <laughs> I don't think I we don't have think an I will. <laughs> Oh no. Bro, the other day I was just saying, like, I so like people come out of the woodwork that I had been like trying to befriend for years, and I'm like the, the position's been filled. <laughs> like I'm in- I am perpetually the little brother from Freaks and Geeks being like, why would I need another friend? I already have two. Two friends is really like the max amount of friends I, anyone needs. Yeah. I've got like five and I'm I'm I I'm I'm so busy I'm so busy with them like I can't I'm just like please stop I'm please leave me alone I'm fascinated by people that can be that social that can have like I mean what do I know it's probably not the same level of intimacy as us but like it's a different it's a different kind of way of experiencing intimacy that to me is like foreign it's very confusing. Well, given the conversation that we had uh, last night and today before we started recording, I highly doubt is it, it is at the same level of intimacy. Yeah, no, I know, because we're like, <laughs> we're a mess. <laughs> yeah. I'm fine. I know. I, I talked to you last night and then I went on Instagram and my least favorite person from college has less Instagram followers than me. And I decided that I was no longer depressed. <laughs> Well, that's that is literally great. and truly what happened. Yeah, listen, spite is a great motivator. Spite is a great way. It's truly my main one. <laughs> okay, sorry. Let's get back to the task that is at hand. Okay. Okay. So I want to talk about how these two episodes, what the message is, mm-hmm. and also how they interact together. Sure. And so in the first one, Blanche's brother Clayton is coming to visit and Blanche is super excited and then we get a very archetypical coming out scenario full of goofs and gags where comes out to Rose in a moment that's like funny because she really doesn't get it until it's like really happening to her and then because he's too nervous to come out to Blanche ropes her into it and basically says that they fucked in the park. That's literally what he says. His cover story. He's like, he's like, yeah, I ran into Rose in the park and we had sex and they haven't been home since then. So he's like, we boned in the park. Yeah, I just like fucked your friend in public later. And then we get this finally comes out to Blanche Mm -hmm. and she's in denial, obviously. And then the takeaway that we get is basically Blanche saying, I don't understand And he says, well, you need to accept it or, like, I'm not going to be in your life. 
And she's like, okay, like, I don't understand, but like, I love you. And the real gag is that they are actually exactly the same because they are one, great looking, yeah. two, charming, and three, irresistible to men. Right. That- so they actually have like way more in common now. They should just like talk about dick. Right. The, in- like- the entirety of the third act is her being like, I can never see you the same way. And like, we've always been so close and so similar. And he's like, this just makes us more similar. We have something yeah. you two bond about. It's Which is wonderful. I think it's great. I think it's also typical that Blanche is like known slut. Yeah. That's like her main character trait. And she's like weird about someone else's sexual activity, which is like classic. He already knows he's gay. So this isn't a gay discovery episode. This is a character that knows that he is gay. It's very much a coming out story. Mm-hmm. So he comes out, Blanche is in denial. She She's freaking out. And then when he puts pressure on her, she's able to not necessarily understand, but respect it. My favorite moment might be that at the very end, there's a classic moment of like embarrassing allyship where she thinks that they're in a gay bar because like he's there and there are some other men there. So she makes a whole big scene about like, any one of you could date my brother and I'd support it. And they're like, I'd rather sleep with you, lady. Right. And she's like, and we're just... Oh, and oh, how we laugh. Oh, how we laugh. So that's where we leave it. And then two to three years later, come back. And this is interesting. So the first episode, like I said, came out right after the first national coming out day. Mm -hmm. It's very much so a time capsule of the of the times. Right. And it's working with the environment that we're in. The second episode Sisters of the Bride comes out like a year after three like gay couples tried to petition for marriage in Hawaii. Mm. So the conversation of gay marriage is starting to brew. This is and so yeah, this was my my thing. I want to talk about this. Okay, I'm ex- no go into no it. no. I want to say I want you to say your thing and then I'll say my thing. You say okay. your thing. Should we kiss? <laughs> so just, once again, we're we're introduced. Clayton's coming from another visit, and right off the bat, Blanche is kind is like in denial. She's like, you know, I think that whole gay thing was a phase. Right. And the girls are like, um, I don't think so, Blanche. And you can tell that she's really like, she hasn't come to terms with it. She has this fantastic line that's like, I think it was a phase. You know, like when he was in high school and he used to go watch all those gladiator movies. Like, it's like that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but whatever, Dorothy's like, yeah, it's exactly like that. Do you know the story of um, Ben-Hur? No, but I would like to. Okay. So this is kind of expli- like explicitly a reference to the movie Ben-Hur which would have come out around the time that those people were in high school, which was written by Gore Vidal and starred Charlton Heston. Gore Vidal, famous homosexual. Charlton Heston, famous bigot. And Gore Vidal, uh, to add tension, <laughs> told Charlton Heston's co-star that uh, when... The, the plot of that movie is these like two men uh, were childhood friends and then they meet later in lifers and they have to fight. And uh, Gore Vidal told only the co- only the co-star that when they were teenagers, these two characters were lovers, and that Charlton Heston's character wants to deny it, and he's trying to start it back up again. So that whole movie, Charlton Heston is playing it and like doesn't know that that's the subtext of the scene, but his partner in every one of these scenes is just like low-key trying to fuck and being like, remember when we were in high school and we used to bang? Like, what's up? What's good, Charles? And it's phenomenal. I would like to watch that. It's really good. It's so good also because it's just subtly two hours of humiliating Charlton Heston for being an asshole. And it's gay. I love art. Oh, yeah. It's also... The gladiator thing is just also like... It's clear that everything this guy did is just so gay. He's just been gay, gay, gay this whole time. And like, somehow that doesn't click for the people that he's close to. Like, namely his family and Blanche, because that's the family member that we are introduced to. Okay, so in the course of this episode, right off the bat, Blanche is like, I don't, I don't think he's really gay. And everyone's like, okay, Blanche. We meet, he comes there and he surprise introduces his boyfriend, which is a very spicy choice, but it's, it's how sitcoms work. Right. Because there wouldn't be tension if we knew the boyfriend was coming. Right. And of course the boyfriend has a mustache and is a cop. And like, 
A cab, fuck 12, but like in the world of Golden Girls, cops are very hot, and especially to Blanche, because Blanche obviously loves a man in uniform. So it's like, truly, she and her brother are the same, and they have a type, and it's like a sexy cop. Right. Whose handcuffs, like, they can presumably borrow. The boyfriend's like hot, too. Boyfriend's such a, so, such a bear. Yeah, I'm into the boyfriend. He's cute. He's super cute. If I was gonna fuck gay dudes, that's like I think that's like what I'd be into. Just like, but just like a like a little like kind of little daddy, yeah, but not like, like a, weird about a it. A little daddy. Uh, um, uh, either of the Maverick men, uh, Doctor Tressa McMillan and Doctor Roxanne Gay, who are both very serious, very educated, and intelligent women. On their first episode of their podcast for like 30 minutes, they talked about how they both love like dating little men and they call them pocket poppies. And I always think about that. But yeah, this this guy's quite the pocket poppy. So, okay. So Blanche, Blanche says, this is like so classic. She's like, I don't really mind Clayton being homosexual. I just don't like him dating men. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then she says, there must be homosexuals who date women and then I think Dorothy says, yeah, they're called lesbians. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is like... Because oh, oh. Dorothy is just so on it. Dorothy is my favorite Dorothy is a fucking P-flag mom out queen. here. Like, yeah. <laughs> so then basically we have a lot of gay panic. There's like... Or straight panic about gays. Yeah. And then it all sort of culminates when they go out in public. And Blanche's main concern is like... What are people going to think of him being gay? She's very worried about that, which is also the exact conversation I had with my mother recently. Like the last time we talked about it, I was like, you know, like I'm gay, right? Like you want to do something with that, bro? (laughs) And she was like, that's how I talked to my mother, by the way. (laughs) And she was like, well, like, I just don't know what I would like, because they were living in like a super small town at the time. And she's like, I don't know what I would like the people in this town would think. And I'm like, what part of this conversation makes you think that I want, I care if the neighbors know, like I am not so concerned with being like politically out that I need you to be uncomfortable in this small town with a bunch of people I don't care about. I'm worried that you're uncomfortable with me. I think that kind of dissonance is like classic. Mm -hmm in like coming out to your family when they're not like immediately cool with it where they're like other people are going to be so horrible to them and it's like i don't care about other people mary i just care about you because like you're my sister or my mom or whatever i remember when we were dating a close friend of my mom like her daughter came out and she didn't handle it well And my mom, like, thought that that was fine. And I just remember her just casually telling this story to me in the kitchen and being like, yeah, like, she's fine with gay people. She's just not okay with her daughter being gay. That's, like, exactly always it, Yeah, it it was so... And it was just, like, so surreal because I was like, I don't understand how you can say that to your 17-year-old kid who, like, is gay. Like, that's okay. I don't understand how, like... Gay and, like, being really gay about Like, being... Yeah, like, currently dating another girl in this small town, like, getting shit for it, and you, like, have the nerve to, like, look me in the eye and be like, but it's okay for, like, parents' love to be conditional around this issue. Like, it's crazy. It's really weird. I don't... I, I, I think genuinely that's not true anymore, and that's progress, because even, you know, 15 years ago, when we were, like youths that was such a normal attitude and it was really fucking dark because you just are like well I guess you like accept me but only you know like but begrudgingly like I'm still certainly less good now (laughs) you know yeah like I'm okay with you being gay I just wish you I just wish you weren't and think that it like yeah it's it's very much like a defect and a character flaw but like I accept you because I'm a good person is like what I take away from that which is really a lovely thing for a parent to feel about you. That's kind of where I'm at it with my folks right now, but they have, we're like making progress. And honestly, like I'm very comfortable with, they're old and they're so good in like basically every other way of raising me and are so supportive that if like, if this is their flaw, that's fine. And like, I have weird support elsewhere. So it's like, super it's like it's whatever and like as long as i can be like 
oh, I was talking to Clementine yesterday, and they and they don't go like, what? <laughs> Where I'm like, yeah, Maggie and I last night, and they're not like, what? How dare like, yeah. then That's all I really need. Just as long as I can update them about my life, and they're not like actively freaking out. Yeah. Like, that's fine. Okay, do you want to jump into the fi- finishing the... Um... Okay, yeah. Well, so they're at this banquet. Blanche isn't going to come because she... Oh, I forgot to mention her brother is gonna is planning to marry this guy, his boyfriend. Right. And so she is like not okay and super makes it about her and like freaks out, says she does wants no part of it, um and decides not to come to this banquet, um that's part of the B, B plot. The C plot is also just that Sophia has been whoring out Dorothy for free things for this volunteer dinner, and I love it. I live. It's really great, yeah. It's classic. So Blanche comes to the banquet, but she makes it very clear that she's not there for her brother and his fiance. She's here to support Rose. And then there's a really upsetting moment right when Clayton is about to introduce his fiance to someone that Blanche just, to avoid someone hearing that he's gay and engaged, she just yells fire. (laughs) It's like kind of everything, honestly. Like I wanted to use that not for like, not for like keeping gay people in the closet, but like next time I'm just in a situation and I want an out, I think that's what I'm gonna do. Everybody, it's just a big old mess. Everybody comes home and then we get like a very quick conversation where Sophia, who is the oldest and the wisest, basically changes Blanche's mind by putting it into perspective. The reason that Clayton wants to marry this guy is like, because he loves him in the same way that Blanche loved her husband. And then she goes to make up with them. And her brother sets some really firm boundaries, like, He's my family now, so, like, if you're not cool with that, you're gonna have to not be my family. And meanwhile, this boyfriend is just, like, being the best version of the supportive significant other when you go to have, like, a traumatic family vacation. And your significant other is just, like, stoic and supportive, letting you fight the battle, but also, like being there and, like, sticking up for you. He's pretty great. And so the end is, like, once again, we kind of end up where we were at the end of the first episode where I think we're left to think that she really means it this time which is that she's she's still not sure she understands but she does respect it and that's like kind of where we leave this because I don't think this character comes back again but there are a couple other gay episodes so that's actually what I wanted to talk about was that last scene slash like just generally the significance of like a marriage plot in 1991 because there's there's this absolutely buckwild line one of the I like what you're uh, gonna mention yeah uh fucking dorothy. they're trying to convince yeah dorothy says they're they're trying to convince blanche to like be okay with it and dorothy says they're in a committed monogamous relationship do you know like how great that is at a time like this basically saying it's the height of the aids crisis and your brother's gay aren't you happy he's not fucking around is like the subtext. Like at least he's one of those monogamous gays. I think the subtext is twofold. It's like AIDS is happening and he's not putting himself at risk, but also like at least he's not one of those homosexuals that just wants to fuck a bunch of weird men. Yeah. It's also that it's very it's like not great, but it's like, no, it's of the, it's of 1991. It also kind of ties back to what I was saying before, uh, the arguments about gay marriage being a fight rooted in privilege, because paradoxically, by the time we got gay marriage in 2012, that was true. Gay marriage was for the HRC gays. But in the 90s, you mentioned that this was right before uh, or right after the couples tried to get married in Hawaii. Like, in the 90s, gay marriage was a radical notion and a necessary notion because AIDS taught us the limits of tolerance, that it's not enough to be tolerated. You have to insist on full and equal citizenry because when we got sick, the government didn't care. And so gay people start fighting for gay marriage so that their loved ones don't die alone, so that they have visitation rights, so that they can share health insurance. Like when the fight started, it was a deeply radical fight. And all of the people fighting for it aged into 
uh, HRC gays who became liberals, and that's when they won. Like the the arc of the history of the fight for gay marriage is a really, really interesting narrative of society normalizing gays, but only certain gays, and how an idea that can start radical can get compromised and compromised and compromised. And it by the end, it's still progress, but it's much more everything radical had been kind of taken out of it in order to get it passed in order for it to become socially acceptable we had to lean into like heteronormativity and going through like political liberal methods of legal recognition rather than like it being a fight for personhood in a much more immediate sense does that make it sense seems, it totally makes sense and it <clears throat> seems to me that the cycle is often that by the time something is made law in mm-hmm. some way the conversation is like three steps ahead of that so by right. the time we got gay marriage, it was like the conversation was past like gay couples should be viewed as equal to straight couples. And now it's like, well, the c- entire concept of marriage is kind of whack to begin with. And now we'll probably be getting to that being uh, recognized legally somehow in like another few decades in the same way that <laughs> like, you know, like trans issues, like just now people are starting to be like, I've heard about these people called trans women, and I think yeah. they might be women. And all the queers are like, yeah, Mary, I mean, like, we have, we were past her. We've done like, been new, yeah. Like, we've been new, and, like, now, like, my gender is duck, and I mean it. Like, yeah. what? <laughs> Say what? And, and I think that this is a perfect, it, it goes back to what I was saying earlier about this being, like, a necessary step. A necessary, an outdated step, but still an important step. Because yes, like gay marriage was like comically like gay. Well, homophobia is over in the same way that when Obama was elected, people were like, well, racism is done. Right. We finished. It's laughable. But at the same time, it's laughable because it's delayed and because everything takes so much longer than it should. So like by the time that we finally get gay marriage it's like yeah we don't really need that anymore we, we really what we actually really need is for uh we need like marriage. anti-discrimination laws yeah you know we need like, for marriage to be abolished because it's an outdated system of ownership that harkens back to colonial america when people were property for a substance economy and everyone's like wait what i i thought you wanted i thought you guys wanted to share health care like <laughs> and you're like well don't get me started on health care bitch like <laughs> So actually though, yeah. Like it's that's a- why when I look at these things I try to we can pick apart like that line with Dorothy because it's wild cuz I think on one hand it's supposed to be like positive because like AIDS is a very valid source of concern, but the subject right. is also like well at least he's not like fucking a bunch of random guys. Right. Like, at least he's this, not one of those. At least he's a homosexual that looks like a heterosexual. It's two steps. It's it's only, like, two steps beyond it's okay that he's gay, but why does he have to have sex with men? Like, it's basically the same thing. It's just, like, a little more dressed up. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's the same sentiment. Like, that. that's the level of acceptance we're reaching with this, is, like, at least he's not one of them homo homos. Mm-hmm. But... I hear you on... Like me, completely unclockable. You'd never know I'm a homosexual man because I just really so straight. Uh, I hear you on that. And it, it makes me think of like... I was at boarding school in 2008 when Obama got elected and I was standing next to a close friend of mine who was like already out and like a lesbian, lesbian, like Kinsey Six gay. And like, I just remember like turning and seeing this like 16-year-old gay girl crying she's like I can get married now and she was fucking right and like I don't that moment still it's the same feeling like um uh when I was like 20 um I went to San Francisco Pride for the first time and I was like this is so commercial this is so nasty this is so like played out prides for straight people now and then I saw a bunch of clearly like teenage kids who'd like taken the bus three hours from their small town to go to San Francisco pride and I was like okay that's what we're here for like that's what this is for that's what this episode makes me think of like it's it's as much as we want to fight for more progress and more progress and more progress it is nice to like pause and look at these kind of beautiful moments of like small progress or acceptance it's good every once in a while to stop and acknowledge the victories because it helps us keep fighting. I think 
on two levels that's true it's one the small victories historically and to be able to be like wow yeah this episode taught us that like you can come out and like wow we actually like can get married to the people that we love regardless of their gender but i think the microcosm of this episode is this isn't like a biopic about harvey milk it's about one guy and his sister and him coming out to her and her dealing with it and that's like ultimately what it comes down to for a lot of people because like we have to fight for everybody but then there's also the personal battle where you have to like tell your mom and that's also like super hard in its own private way Speaking of the Harvey Milk biopic, have you ever seen that movie? No. Are you going to break up with me? No. You don't need to watch the Harvey Milk biopic where two straight men play Harvey Milk and his gay lover. Um, It's exhausting. But uh, But they're so brave. (laughs) Fuck Sean Penn. (laughs) Fuck Sean Penn. He hit Madonna. He hit Madonna, dude. All my homies hate Sean Penn. Yeah, when Maggie, <laughs> Maggie's the one who brought up that Sean Penn like beat Madonna, and I was like, "What?" Sean Truly, Penn beat you're, Madonna. You're right, dude. Fuck Sean Penn. All my homies yeah. hate Sean Penn. Yeah, actually, though, but like, there's a scene in that movie where, and keep in mind that this takes place in like the late '70s, but like they decide that like the most political act they can do is be out to their families. And they have this crazy scene where they just have, like, a phone in a basement. And, like, everyone who's, like, not out to their families, they just, like, one by one, like, take the phone to them and, like, have them call their parents and tell them that they're a homo. It's violent. I would never—I can't. That is also a thing I'm glad we're past, is, like, being politically out to people who fucking hate you. I think we now— as queers have just been like, if it doesn't improve your life to be out to someone, you don't have to be out to them. Uh, sure. Which I think is a much better system. Because that scene gives me hives. It's, ugh, just... Were your parents chill when you came out to them? Um, yeah. Yeah, like they were. They were, yeah. Um, They never talked about it, and they told me to not tell our family. Like, they told me to not tell my grandma, which was stupid, because my grandma would have not cared at all and wanted to meet you. But I, like, listened to them. I really regret that. It was very this thing of, like, I'm we're fine with it, but also, like, don't talk about it. Like, Pia and I got in trouble at school a lot for, like, PDA. We'd, like, hug each other and get in trouble while, like, straight couples just, like, stuck their tongues down each other's throats, like, in front of teachers. And every time that happened at school, my parents would be like very on the side of the school and very like upset with me so yeah they were like fine with it but I think also once I like started dating a guy in high in college they were like very relieved and very happy yeah they were very happy they could write it off as a phase I think little did they know that the enigma wrapped in a paradox come just like turned out to be like the biggest non-binary slut and they can all (laughs) just deal with it have you come out to them as non-binary I have. It didn't stick. I've, I've told them several times and I've told them my pronouns several times and they, they still refer to me as like a girl and their daughter and they just don't get it um, and they don't take it seriously. My sister's pretty good about it, but everyone else in my family, I'm very much still like the oldest girl and they really don't. Yeah. That's um, sad. I, this I'm is, sorry. It's, it's fine. I mean, honestly, it's the same thing of not wanting to come out. Like, I I, I came out and it didn't take. And um, I don't necessarily need to, like, have complicated conversations about gender with my parents. That doesn't make me feel, like, more valid in my identity. And I'd rather just, like, not have a really whole, like, painful confrontation with them where I, like, I'd rather just go be around all of my friends who, like, understand what non-binary is and, like, treat me the way that I am. You know? It's just more important to me to do that it's not worth my energy <laughs> to yeah that's have some exactly big dramatic thing i'm a grown-up i don't yeah i don't need their permission to to do this or to be who i am you know i hate I talking I, I hate i hate saying cheesy shit like that but whatever be happy true. national coming it out do day be true though it do know. be true i'd be stressed because i want to get these i want to get these boobs snip snapped so bad and i yeah. just like Oh my god, I can't even, like, begin to imagine that conversation. It might be fine, but... I would frame it as, like, I would frame it as, like, a reduction and then just, like, get them all the way reduced. You know what I mean? I got them reduced by 100%. (laughs) You got them reduced by 100%. I don't know, just bring, like, you could, like, listen, if you really wanted, like, 
commit to the bit you could just buy like some b-cup padding and like wear that when you go visit them you've said that and i kind of love it i actually think if i had a snip stop i would love to do like girl drag (laughs) i love that because it's like so separate from my like day-to-day loop right i think if i think if i got a snip snop i would like be like radically more comfortable in this body yeah i think so i think that would do it yeah I think that that is like the middle ground thing that would help profoundly. Great. You so do when are you going to come over with the scissors? Ugh. Have I told you, you should... I plan to get them taxidermied? Oh my God. I love that so much. Just like, I love that so much. Wall. Just my big saggy boobs. And you can kind of just do this to them. They kind of just like remove the fat though. It's not like they like cut. I mean, you, if, unless you get your nipples removed. <laughs> I kind of would love that, actually. It makes actually. me so happy. They're going to look like a fucking about, Ken doll. <laughs> I fantasize about having, like, none titties and then just getting a bunch of really dumb tattoos. I love that. <laughs> like, I think I'm just going to wait until my parents die or go blind. Yeah. That's a perfectly reasonable <laughs> choice, in my opinion. Right? Yeah. Knock on All right. <laughs> All right, what would you rate this episode, Pia? I would rate the first episode um, one homosexual who doesn't date men. I would rate the second one one lesbian. <laughs> I love these episodes. I think they're super wholesome. They also just have like bars, like bars on bars of just like yeah. incredible comedy. But I would say overall, well, I would love to revisit the Golden Girls as a phenomena, as like a gay phenomena, because it's truly beloved by the culture. I don't know if you knew. I'm um, aware, yes. <laughs> um, yeah. Did you read that somewhere? So <laughs> I would, I would just super like, I would just super, I, I, I just, I just ha- can't recommend any episode of the Golden Girls. Jump right in, get into it. Yeah. Um, like, what would you rate this? I would rate it four out of four Golden Girls. Oh my god. Your brain is so big. (laughs) Well, I don't know if you have any additional reading for this week, but I would just recommend um, Matt Bounds' entire YouTube channel. He does commentary on queer media, not unlike this, um, but he has done a lot of videos about different gay um, characters and happenings in various sitcoms over the years and breaking down what that means about the context that they're in so I got some of the information that I had in this episode about like what was happening historically from his YouTube video the golden girls gay journey and also Mm. his series is like somehow cruising themed so he wears like medium ship geish it's very fetch it's great He's super it. smart. He's super cool. He brings up a lot of awesome points. So anything that he's made. My additional reading is going to be the queer episodes of Sex in the City. I think if you have uh, watched these Golden Girls episodes, comparing and contrasting with the queer episodes of Sex in the City actually tells you a lot. About yeah, it's <laughs> our, our values as a culture shifted over the course of the 90s, like to go from one to the other. How uh, how four older women living in Miami are somehow more progressive than four young professionals living in Manhattan. I think I saw it on Kardashian Colloquium. Shout out. Uh, but Shouts saw, out Michelle. Shouts out Michelle. But I saw somewhere a meme that was like, and as I typed this, I couldn't help but wonder, was Sex and the City the last show that convincingly portrayed happiness under capitalism? Oh my god. Which is yes, exactly that, what it is. That's it's, a repost that she made. The account is called avocado underscore ibuprofen, and they do really incredible um, like posts on Instagram that are very like philosophical and thoughtful that are somewhere in between memes and comics. So mm-hmm. I would also recommend that and specifically the post that they made about um, Sex in the City. Because it's mm. really great. Absolutely. Okay, I think that's. I think that's. Oh, okay. and also the episode of Futurama where B. Arthur plays Femputer, just like a female computer. <laughs> Femputer! <laughs> it's just B. Arthur in a robot voice. It's fucking I love everything. It. That's fucking great. Okay, so I have burdened you this week. Well, not. I. Okay, so I have. 
brought joy to your life with two delightful 22-minute episodes of formulaic television. What fresh hell will you bestow upon me next week? What will I have to read? Uh, Next week, we will be reading three different in-depth Rolling Stone cover stories on Britney Spears from three very different eras in her life. So we've got 17-year-old Britney. We've got peak breakdown breakdown Britney and then we've got like post breakdown Las Vegas Britney and it is a journey I'm so excited to talk about Britney Spears with you we all we do is talk about Britney Spears but I'm excited to do it in front of a microphone if you want to scrap <laughs> this podcast format and have it just be like the Pia Clementine Britney hour I'm interested. yeah we could I, we could fully do that. We could do a couple. I could fully fill several hundred hours with talking to you. Absolutely. About Britney Spears. Well, that's exciting for the six people who are listening uh, to look I forward really to next week. I really hope we can get it up to seven one of these days. Someday we'll not, get seven. But I, not, right now I'm, yeah, I'm happy with the Let's hope six. that seventh isn't Honey Marchetti. <laughs> yes. Even though I love her very much and appreciate <clears throat> all the ways she supports me. Yes. Just in case she is listening. Like right now. I just turn around. <laughs> Honey's just like... <laughs> yeah, she sticks her tongue out and looks coyly. She does that all the time. The classic honey. Um, Alright. Are we ready for the outro? Yeah. Well, in the words of Sappho, someone will remember us even in another time. And in the words of our fallen saint Kanye West, everything in the world is exactly the same. And it really do be. It do. Okay. Bye. Bye.